I'm Mike, and you are listening to the Hardtack Military History Podcast. Hardtack is a military history podcast and contains mature themes, content, and some crude language. Listener discretion is advised. The opinions and analysis expressed are that of the producer. Now, put on your Kevlar, secure your lickies and chewies, and prepare to take cover for this episode of Hardtack. For those that aren't already tracking, Sam has made the difficult decision to part ways with Hardtack. I will definitely miss my podcasting partner. However, Sam has some big plans for the future, and as we have all experienced, prioritizing can sometimes mean letting go of things. So, Sam, thank you for all of your hard work and dedication to Hardtack. I'm damn proud of you. For our regular listeners, Sam left you all a message on the Hardtack Instagram. So check that out if you haven't already. All right, a few items and we will get into this episode. Check out the Hardtack socials found via Linktree in the episode description, or by searching Hardtack on Instagram, Facebook, or the insane Twitter machine. You can also check out the website and leave a comment at hardtackpod.com. Don't forget to drop a review on whichever platform you use to consume your Hardtack, and tap that subscribe button. Thank you. July 336 BCE in ancient Macedonia was intended to be a joyous time. The atmosphere on this particular day was one of elation, of joy, and of celebration. Cleopatra of Macedonia, daughter of Philip II and his fourth wife Olympias, was to be married to her uncle, the full-blooded brother of her mother. Desiring a massive turnout to both celebrate the occasion, but also to endear the population and more recent enemies to him, Philip II of Macedonia spent grand amounts of money and resources on the event and invited as many Greeks as possible. However, beneath the atmosphere of lavish indulgence lay more sinister and murderous desires. In the morning hours of that July day in Macedonia, Philip II, general, statesman, father of Alexander the Great, unifier of Macedonia, author of Greece's first federal constitution, reformer of the Macedonian army, and conqueror of the Illyrians, was assassinated by a bodyguard and former lover. This is Hardtack, Episode 26, The Life of Philip II of Macedonia. Imagine for a moment the ancient Greek world without unification, where the Athenians, Paeonians, Illyrians, and Thracians each and all remained fragmented and at odds with each other. A world where ancient Macedonia perpetually continued in its struggle to survive against enemies that exploited its natural resources and harassed its shrinking borders. Imagine for a moment that Alexander the Great was without the esteemed Macedonian army, its innovative siege machinery and new military technologies, that the Persian Empire remained unconquered, and that Alexander was not so great, that Hellenistic culture hadn't spread. Our world today would look very different in the areas of culture. Geopolitical lines, religious dispersion, music, art, writing, and of course the historical timeline as a whole. 
Philip II's rule set the course for much of ancient history. Philip II was born in Macedonia in 382 BCE. Little is known of his early life, but what we do know is that he was the youngest of Macedonian king Amentus III and his wife Eurydice's three sons. At age 15, Philip, along with 30 other prominent Macedonian barons, was sent as a diplomatic hostage to Thebes, modern-day Theva in central Greece, and resided there from 368 to 365 BCE. King Amentus III was getting older, and a man by the name of Ptolemy of Achorus, a part of the royal family, came forward and claimed that it was his right to secede Amentus upon his death. However, Amentus had chosen Philip's older brother, Alexander II, to take the throne. Amentus responded diplomatically, and in a way often utilized in history. He offered Ptolemy his daughter in marriage. Ptolemy accepted, and for a short time, Alexander II's secession was ensured. Amentus died when Philip was 12 years old, and Alexander became king as had been arranged. Ptolemy just waited a few months before doing what I believe most had anticipated, raising a civil war against the new king. Ptolemy had the support of Athens, and if Ptolemy were to take the throne, Athens would have much favor with the Macedonian throne. Thebes could not have this, so sent their own man, General Pelopidas, to restore Alexander's throne. An arrangement was reached between the two men, and Alexander remained on the Macedonian throne, but with young Philip and the 30 others to Thebes as diplomatic hostages. You may recall from the last episode, the Battle of Teutoburg Forest, the diplomatic hostage system was mentioned as it applied to the Germanic hero Arminius. Although Philip lived some 360 years prior, the system was really not that different. The idea was that the child exchange ensured an agreement was honored or to guarantee the good behavior of subject peoples. In this case, Greece intended to keep Macedonia in check. But it also fulfilled good diplomatic relations. It is also important to remember that youth like Philip were not treated as hostages in the typical sense, but as a royal guest. Philip was a prince after all. Philip received a Greek education, was taught their customs and courtesies, and indoctrinated with the Greek way of life. As we will come to find, this benefited him greatly later in life, and his diplomatic prowess was begrudgingly respected even by his greatest critics. As stated by the rhetorician Polyenus, Philip achieved no less through conversation than through battle. Philip's rise to power was characterized by violence, much like his rule, and his ascension to the Macedonian throne, really the product of Macedonians' enemies. It should be understood that all of Amentus's sons were legitimate heirs to the Macedonian throne because, well, Macedonia did not have a formal primogeniture requirement. Primogeniture ensured that the firstborn was first in the line of secession which helps prevent any question as to who the next ruler was to be. But for Macedonia, this made the issue of royal secession complicated, as its kings often produced multiple legitimate claimants to the throne. Taking advantage of this, Macedonia was kept relatively weak by its enemies, which encouraged civil wars as claimants fought over the throne when a king died. Or assassinations were orchestrated, hostages taken, and some neighboring states even going so far as to install client kings on the Macedonian throne to further control the exploited state. Macedonia was treated like an absurd playground by its rivals. Unlike its surrounding Greek city-states, Macedonia was a male-dominated tribal warrior society governed by a monarchy. The Greek world viewed Macedonia the same way Greek chroniclers viewed Philip after he rose to power, backwards and barbaric. Historian Richard Gabriel explains it well, quote, 
Culturally, the Greeks of Philip's day regarded Macedonia as a geographic backwater, inhabited by untrustworthy barbarians who spoke an uncouth form of Greek, were governed by primitive political institutions, subscribed to customs, social values, and sexual practices that bordered on the unspeakably depraved. To the degree that the Greeks thought about isolated Macedonia at all, it was from the perspective of snobbish and sophisticated contempt. End quote. About one year after Philip was taken hostage to Thebes, his brother Alexander II was assassinated while participating in a war dance called the Zandika. It was never confirmed, but all signs point to Ptolemy having been involved. However, Ptolemy was once again denied the throne when Philip's second brother, Perdiccas, was appointed king. But Perdiccas was only 15 and so needed a guardian. In all of their infinite wisdom, the Macedonian assembly assigned the one and only Ptolemy as the young king's guardian. Shockingly, Perdiccas was not killed and in a reverse turned 18 and murdered Ptolemy. The Athenian-backed general was killed by the throne he so desperately desired. It was then that Philip's release from Thebes was secured and he was brought home to Macedonia and appointed a provincial governor by his brother. In his role as governor, Philip had the important task of defending Macedonia's borders and resources from raids. In order to accomplish this, he was given the authority to raise and train militia. Philip also found himself in an arranged marriage during this time to his first wife of seven, Phila. Perdiccas was killed in battle in 359 BCE. There are conflicting stories as to exactly when Philip was appointed king of Macedonia. Greek historian Diodorus wrote that the Macedonian assembly selected him after Perdiccas' death. However, Roman historian Marcus Justinus claims that the assembly appointed Amentus IV, Perdiccas's five-year-old son, as king, with his uncle Philip serving as regent. Justinus goes on to state that two years later, Amentus IV was deposed and Philip II elected due to increasing threats to Macedonia. In the first year of Philip's reign, his throne was challenged five times. Macedonia's lack of formal primogeniture again reared its head. However, Philip wasted no time eliminating any competition. He had his half-brother Archelaus murdered, two other half-brothers exiled, and the remaining two claimants were also killed. But what to make of Justinus' claims of greater danger and impending wars? Macedonia had long been exploited because of its resources. Rich pastures, metal mines, and timber were plentiful, making the nation a desirable target. Athens had taken possession of several gold and silver mines, the Illyrians were ever at war with Macedonia along its borders, and the various Greek nations exploited Macedonia's inability to protect its own borders and its resources. Philip's rise to power and hasty removal of rival claimants secured his throne, and the Greek world had reason to be concerned. The Greek city-states had long enjoyed Macedonia's riches, and it was clear that, with Philip on the throne, the status quo was subject to change. Philip would have learned about Macedonia's suffering during his education. The new king was no stranger to the meddling of Athenian and Theban armies and leaders in Macedonian politics. He remembered well the death of his father and attempted assassinations of, the deaths of his two brothers, and of course his own hostage ship. Philip had had enough. The impending danger referred to by Justinus was an attack from multiple sources. The Illyrians were to invade again, though this time they aimed to occupy all of Macedonia. The Paeonians were mobilizing to attack the Macedonian lowland plains. Athens had assembled an invasion fleet and intended to place Argeus II, Philip's half-brother, on the throne. Philip needed to take action. It is here that the beginnings of the great Macedonian army that Alexander conquered Persia with began. 
In 359 BCE, Philip II reorganized the Macedonian army. He developed new tactics and birthed a new Macedonian phalanx. He equipped his army with new weapons and created new doctrines. Much like the Greek city-states created their greatest enemy in Macedonia through their meddling, so too did the Greek city-states create the conditions that led to one of the most powerful and potent infantry formations in military history. Philip needed a large army and he needed one quickly. He needed men ready to take up arms and capable of fighting. He needed equipment and he needed money. There was little of either. Using what Macedonia had to offer, high-quality timber, bronze, and iron, Philip outfitted his footmen with the sarissa, a six-meter-long pike. The sarissa was held in both hands of its wielder, four-fifths of the way down the shaft. The sarissa was unique to Macedonia and made of cornel wood from the cornelian cherry tree, abundant in the nation's forest. The spear point of the sarissa was just over 20 inches long, and the weapon weighed in total about 14 and a half pounds. It was not difficult to handle for the infantrymen. Though poorly armored, the soldier had a strong, durable pike of exceptional length to keep their enemies at an appreciable distance. Once outfitted, the men of the Macedonian army fought in a dense phalanx formation measuring eight rows across and 16 ranks deep. For comparison, the Theban's phalanx was 12 ranks deep. What's more, the length of the sarissa meant that five layers of pike heads protruded from the front of the phalanx. The Macedonian phalanx was a sharp and deadly steamroller. But it takes more than arms and bodies to win battles. Victory requires tact and discipline, and Philip ensured that these were abundant in his soldiers. Macedonian infantry drilled endlessly, learning to move and communicate, to shift the depth of the phalanx or its direction in response to enemy movements. The Macedonian phalanx was a well-articulated formation that allowed tactical flexibility and responsiveness, which made life hell for more static enemy formations. The Greek author Polyenus gives us an example of the Macedonian phalanx's flexibility. When Philip found himself under attack by Thracians, quote, he ordered the rear rank, when the trumpeter sounded the retreat, to lower its spears and remain in place, and the rest to retreat, in order to stop the enemy pursuers, and to provide a head start for his own men, end quote. This could only have been achieved with Philip's reforms. The Greek phalanx did not allow for ranks to retreat through the rear ranks and still have the defensive pikes available to the Sarissa's length. One of Philip's more radical innovations was the reorganization of his cavalry. Macedonia boasted large plains, and the large supply of grain made horse breeding a non-issue. Philip structured his heavy cavalry into squadrons, a change from the individual cavalry combat approach that Macedonia had previously utilized. His squadrons were organized on a territorial basis and contained about 200 horses, or multiples of that number dependent on the formation. His reorganization and utilization of cavalry arms was tactically perfected by his son Alexander during his conquest. In the words of Richard Gabriel, quote, Philip revolutionized Greek warfare by transforming cavalry from an adjunct force on the battlefield and the combat arm of decision, end quote. It was his combined arms approach and using infantry and cavalry in tandem that made his new doctrine so effective. Macedonia's cavalry tactics even inspired German tactics in World War I and II. It is obvious that Philip's reforms were long-reaching. Though there are many other reforms, both big and small, that Philip made, there is one more that I will mention here. Philip was the first Western general to create a permanent engineering corps with siege capability. He established a department of military engineering focused on research and development of new weapons and how they could be best applied. 
Based in Pella, the department constructed magazines, workshops, and training centers for its soldiers. But siegecraft went against Greek doctrine. Greek armies weren't aimed at projecting power over great distances. Philip, barbaric and backward, felt differently. He wanted to project Macedonia's power outward, and logistics and siegecraft were necessary to accomplish his goals. It is important to remember that he had an agenda. The unification of the Greek city-states with Macedonia, and the eventual conquest of the Persian Empire. He wanted to create an empire, and an empire required capture and occupation of cities. Much of Philip's personality can be seen in the Macedonian phalanx and his approach to warfare. The man was capable of adjusting to the circumstances, always viewing diplomacy as an option, but ready to take up the pike if the situation demanded it. Very Clausewitzian of him. Even more so, he was a deadly enemy to encounter, but a great ally to have. With a capable and disciplined army, Philip took up the pike and brought the fight to his enemies before they could bring it to him. Though always open to diplomacy, Philip accomplished much through warfare, though only when he was forced. Macedonian conquest and expansion under his rule occurred both through diplomacy and force. Roman politician Marcus Cicero said of Philip, quote, Philip used to say that all strongholds could be stormed provided an ass laden with gold could get up to them, end quote though not all were agreeable to being bought out. In 358, Philip invaded and conquered Paeonia. Paeonia was situated in the Axius River Valley and in more modern times is divided between Greece, Macedonia, and Bulgaria. It was occupied and absorbed into Macedonia as Macedonian Paeonia. It would prove to be a busy year for the newly forged Macedonian army, as Philip moved on from Paeonia and in the summer won a decisive victory over Illyria, defeating their king, Bartolus. This was a big win for Macedonia for a few reasons. The first is that all of the upper Macedonian territory previously lost to the Illyrians was recovered. The second is a bit more poetic. It was these same lands and the same Illyrian king that Philip's brother Perdiccas III was attempting to regain and defeat when he was killed in the year prior. To drive home the defeat and to encourage diplomatic security and good behavior, Philip took his second wife and married Adata, the Illyrian king's daughter. Adata became known as Eurydice after marrying Philip. As summer transitioned to fall, Philip became involved in Thessaly to the south of Macedonia and began to establish his diplomatic pattern. Having secured Thessaly, he married again, this time to Phila of Larissa, who became known as Philena. His third marriage was again diplomatic, and after his death, Phileno is referred to in harsh terms in some histories, being called common and a whore. Likely this is meant to sully her reputation, as her children were viewed as competition for the throne of Alexander the Great. Remember, Macedonia did not practice formal primogeniture. If we follow Justinus' historical account, it was in 357, after these initial conquests, that Philip was actually elected king and Amentus IV deposed. Without speculating too much, I can see how this is also likely given his reforms, conquests, and growing power. The Macedonian assembly was starting to believe that Philip's success so far was no mere fluke. During the same year, momentous events had occurred. Philip secured the western flank of Macedonia early in the year through a marriage to his fourth and perhaps most famous wife, Olympias. Olympias was the Molossian princess of Epirus. 
Epirus had been expanding under their king, Erebus of Epirus, by subjecting surrounding tribes, expanding Epirus's prestige and resources. Philip, ever the strategic diplomat, married Olympias to ensure amicable relations between growing Epirus and Macedonia, but to also bolster the list of Macedonian allies. Epirus and Macedonia had a common enemy, both victims of raids in the Illyrians. What Philip could not possibly have known was that his marriage to Olympias was to result in the birth of a great general and conqueror of Persia, Alexander III, or the Great. After his fourth marriage and new bond with Epirus, Philip attacked Amphipolis to the east of Macedonia and captured the city. Amphipolis was a critical city. Held by the Athenians, the city allowed the Greek city-state to exert power over Thrace. Thrace was rich in gold, silver, and timber. More resource wars. Further increasing the importance of the city's location was its ports. Athens received much of its grain supply from Scythia and the shipping lanes between Scythia and Amphipolis important to Athens' people. Philip's capture of the city weakened Athens by denying their access to Thrace and crippled their grain supply. In rapid succession, Philip moved on and captured the city of Crinides in 356. Crinides was a key city in the east and so important he renamed it Philippi, after himself. Conquest cost money, feeding an army, paying its soldiers, financing its supplies and weapons, along with bribes to rival politicians, is not a cheap business. Crinides was rich in silver and gold, and the gains from this victory financed the next ten years of Philip's endeavors. His power had left the ancient Greek world quaking. Persia would share similar sentiments in the decades to follow, because during all of Philip's conquests in 356 and the month of July, Olympias gave birth to Alexander III, afraid of the seemingly unstoppable barbarian from backwater Macedonia, the Athenians, Thracians, Illyrians, and Paeonians formed a coalition against Philip. Though the group was formed, nothing was accomplished. They existed almost entirely in name alone. In 354 BCE, Philip II severed his first battle wound, and it appears that sheer chance saved his life. During the siege of Methone in 354, Philip was inspecting structures that had been erected to house and protect his army's siege equipment, desirable targets for flaming arrows and trebuchet fire. Whether or not the sniper on the city walls knew who he took aim at is lost with that man's last breath. But his arrow flew true and struck Philip in the right eye. According to Pliny the Elder's writings, Philip arrived at the medical aid station with the arrow shaft still stuck in his eye. From what we can gather, the arrow did not strike him head on. Forensic archaeologists, in examination of Philip's skull, found that the bone that had been chipped away had been so at an angle that indicated the arrow first hit something before entering his eye. It has been concluded that Philip was wearing his iron helmet and it deflected the arrow's trajectory, turning what would have been a direct hit into a glancing blow. Alive but wounded, Philip lost his right eye and suffered permanent disfigurement. For the morbidly curious, you may be asking yourself how they removed the arrow. We have an answer for that. A Greek physician named Critobulus of Kos used a medical instrument called the Spoon of Diocles to remove the arrowhead. Little is known of the spoon, but we have one description from the philosopher Celsus, who mentions it as a metal spoon-shaped device used to remove arrowheads from the human body. Modern scholars dispute it ever existed. Either way, Critobulus made his reputation that day and stayed with Philip until he healed. It was this injury that won him the moniker of Philip the One-Eyed. 
Greek historian Demetrius wrote that Philip was very sensitive about his disfigurement, and the mention of it would send him into a rage. Fast forward to 345 BCE and his campaign against the Illyrians. Philip suffered two wounds, one from a cavalry lance that broke his collarbone, and the second a much more serious injury to his lower leg. Philip, seated upon his horse, had the bone smashed in his lower leg, so the fibula and tibia. As you can imagine, breaking these bones would be extremely painful, but to have them smashed in battle, crushed perhaps by a mace, and healed with ancient medicine would be unbearable. From Richard Gabriel, quote, In modern medical parlance, a tib-fib fracture remains one of the most difficult injuries to set properly without producing atrophy and leaving the injured leg shorter. To set them correctly, the bones have to be pulled straight and tension maintained on them for several weeks. End quote. He goes on to state that the Greek medicine during Philip's day could not have properly set Philip's leg. Philip walked with a limp for the rest of his life. Further injuring the brutalized king, Philip fell from his horse and broke bones in his wrist and arm. He was rendered unconscious, and many of his men thought him dead. Both the siege of Methone and the battle against the Illyrians permanently changed the man. Working in mental health for the army, I cannot help but wonder as to the psychological impacts of all of this. Surely the man suffered a traumatic brain injury from the arrow and the fall from his horse. Add to that the post-traumatic stress of war and the ego blow from his disfigurement, Philip likely experienced much mental and physical anguish. After periods of respite, Philip returned to his campaigns against Athens, the greatest resistance against his efforts in uniting Greece. It was clear to the conqueror that peace with Athens was not possible. Diplomacy from all angles had failed, and only the might of a decisive Macedonian victory would bring Athens to heel. However, Philip did use diplomatic measures to incite Athenian action. Wanting to maintain high regard among the Greek peoples, Philip goaded Athens with actions that didn't quite cross the line of hostility, but came close enough. Philip took actions like sending troops and supplies to defend targets from Athenian occupation. Philip's agreements with smaller cities enabled Macedonian military presence throughout the Greek world, which, when attacked by Athens, could be defended by Macedonia. He attacked cities sympathetic to Athens, further shrinking their already dwindling list of allies. The pressure was building, and he turned up the heat. Philip ordered the Macedonian naval fleet block the Athenian grain fleet harbored in Harion. Philip transported a ground force over the Bosporus and captured the grain fleet's crew. He then captured 180 ships, dismantled them, and had their timber used to build new siege equipment. The grain was dispersed amongst his army, and some of it was sold. Athens was furious. This final action led Athens to declare war. Philip had succeeded in forcing Athens to be the first aggressor. This brings us to the Battle of Chironea in early August 338 BCE. Philip headed the Macedonian army along with Antipater and his son, Alexander. Macedonian strength, according to Diodorus, was 30,000 infantry and 2,000 cavalry. Allied forces, being Athens and Thebes, are recorded as having 35,000 infantry troops. Cavalry is not mentioned in the records. Allied numbers were further bolstered by 12,000 Boeotians, the famous sacred band, and some 10,000 Athenian citizens. But with numbers aside, army composition and experience were the important factors in the battle's outcome. The Allied army was entirely made up of infantry and had limited tactical options. The Allied forces also could not pursue if Philip chose to retreat. In contrast, if Philip's forces were victorious and the Allies attempted retreat, 
his 2,000 cavalry could easily pursue and crush the fleeing troops and civilians. Gabriel puts it simply, Philip's army was capable of fighting a battle of annihilation. Tack on to that all of Macedonia's experience, power, and training, and there was really no contest. Think back to the Macedonian phalanx and the organized cavalry squadrons. These two forces alone would have been terrifying to enemies that had never truly encountered the tactics of the Macedonian army. Standing at three kilometers wide, the Chironian plain became a field of slaughter for the Allies. 2,000 Allied troops were killed and 4,000 were captured. Macedonia lost less than 200 men. But then something interesting happened. As the Allied forces retreated, rather than send in the cavalry and round up the remaining troops, unleashing holy hell, Philip exercised restraint. Philip hoped to unify Greece under Macedonian hegemony so he extended an olive branch. He allowed the Athenians to retrieve their slain for burial, had them cremated, and sent Alexander at the head of an honor guard to carry the ashes to Athens. All prisoners were then freed without ransom. The Athenians were so taken aback and relieved that they erected a statue to Philip and the Agora. Philip made peace with both Athens and Thebes. The Greek world then saw the creation of the League of Corinth. Philip, appointed the head of the League, became the leader of all unified Greece and its armies. A constitution was drafted and signed, and for the first time in its history, Greece was united in a general peace. His next act was to request the League declare war on a land that only his son would conquer later, Persia. The request was granted. By the time of his daughter Cleopatra's wedding that fateful day in July 336 BCE, Philip had married seven wives had seven children, two sons and five daughters, had reformed the Macedonian army, drafted new doctrine, weapons, tactics, conquered the Greek world, and built the Macedonian empire that his son Alexander would use to bring Persia to its knees. But Philip would not live to see that day. In the early morning hours of the day following his daughter's wedding, Philip entered into a vast arena to preside over athletic games. Before the games, a procession was to enter the theater. Statues of the twelve Olympian gods were carried in, followed by a statue of Philip, and behind his statue walked his son, Alexander. According to Diodorus, quote, Philip himself entered wearing a white cloak. Philip instructed the friends who were escorting him to enter the theater in front of him, and the bodyguards were standing somewhat apart. Pausanias, seeing that the king was alone, rushed forward and, driving the blow right through the ribs, laid him out prostrate and lifeless. Then he sprinted for the gates and the horses he had made ready for his escape. End quote. Blood seeped from Philip's body, staining his white cloak, his bodyguards rushing to his side. But Philip had died almost immediately. The assassin Pausanias, quote, had a head start in the pursuit and would have succeeded in mounting his horse before they could stop him had he not entangled his sandal in a vine and fallen. As he was getting up from the ground, Perdiccas and those with him seized him, ran him through, and killed him. Such was the end of Philip, who, in the course of a reign of 24 years, had been the greatest of the kings of Europe of his day, end quote. Now, there is much speculation as to why Pausanias killed Philip II, and even more in who ordered it or who was involved. The sources aren't clear. 
We know it was Pausanias of Orestes who killed Philip. We know Philip had appointed him a bodyguard, so he was able to get close. We also know, as Diodorus tells us, that Philip himself had promoted Pausanias to an honorable bodyguard position, so he gave access to the killer himself. The question often asked is, why did he do it? There are a few theories. First, Philip had allowed Pausanias to be treated rather poorly, so much so that he was said to have been brutally raped by other men. Further, when the assassin was a young page, Philip was attracted to him and had a sexual relationship with the young man, before moving on to a new lover and leaving him by the wayside. Philip also refused to punish Pausanias' abusers, though he was quite angry, but this just further enraged Pausanias. Motive can never be fully determined, nor can we determine who all was involved. Then there is, of course, the theory that Philip's wife Olympias and her son Alexander were involved. The argument that it was out of Olympias's jealousy is rather unlikely. The man had six other wives, and she was not the first nor the last. She was aware of the polygamy practice in Macedonia. Alexander had been chosen as Philip's heir, and there was no indication that anyone other than Alexander was going to be the next king or anyone other than his mother installed as mother of the king. But during the research, I found an interesting theory. Historian Elizabeth Carney has another theory and focuses not on the motives, but the timing. She asks not who would benefit from Philip's death, but who suffered if he lived. Philip was killed in July, which was just prior to the invasion, and to Asia. Carney suggests that the individual behind the killing may have wanted to stop the invasion. She also asserts that his being killed in a public place indicates that whoever wanted him dead did not have regular access to Philip. Olympias and Alexander surely had regular access. So who would want to stop the invasion and didn't have access to Philip? Perhaps none other than the Persian king himself, Darius. Just food for thought. Historian Richard A. Gabriel neatly summarizes Philip II's legacy. Quote, had there been no Philip to bring the Macedonian national state into existence, to assemble the economic and military resources to unite Greece, to create the bold strategic vision of conquering Persia, and to invent the first modern tactically sophisticated and strategically capable military force in Western military history as the instrument for accomplishing that vision, the exploits of Philip's son Alexander in Asia would not have been possible. End quote. Though some may read or hear this quote and scoff at it, because let's be honest, there are some hardcore Alexander fans out there, it is undeniable that Alexander's conquest of Persia was a direct result of Philip's 24-year reign. Alexander was a great tactician. His father, Philip, a greater strategist. Philip was really the architect of the ancient Greek world in the 4th century BCE and changed the Western world forever. His legacy extended well beyond the years of his son's brief and rapidly though glowing and burning existence. All right, that's it for this episode of Hard Tack. Philip II is a favorite historical figure of mine, and his life is incredibly interesting. Though many viewed him as barbaric, and rightfully so in some cases, there is no doubt that he was a great statesman, diplomat, general, logistician, and a creative and critical thinker. His entire life isn't simply covered in a single episode, and so this was a short overview. If you want to learn more about Philip, Take a look at the show notes. All sources used are listed. I highly recommend Richard Gabriel's book. If you haven't seen the announcement on the hardtack socials, I am shifting to a bi-weekly publishing schedule. So tune in for our next episode on March 15th, episode 27, The Assassination of Julius Caesar.
which will be released on the anniversary of his death. Please don't forget to leave a review and subscribe on whichever platform you listen from. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your support. Thank you for listening. And remember to keep your hardtack dry.